Let's open our Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew, chapter number 27. Thank you. Matthew 27. I'd like to talk to you today about the greatest story ever told. I've, uh, you know, we've been talking, of course, along these lines for a few weeks now. And, uh, it's amazing what people will do to spread this word. One of our missionaries just had to come home from Bolivia. The government down there is putting a great deal of persecution on uh, missionaries. And uh, many missionaries around the world are in great danger. And it's amazing how that uh, in the midst of danger that they, uh, that they will hazard their lives, the lives of their family... Uh, for the call that God has given them. And uh, this has something to do with it right here. They believe from their heart that this is the greatest story ever told and that everybody needs to hear it at least once. I remember years ago, I think it was a great preacher from up in Canada. He said, everybody deserves to hear the gospel once. Uh, Most people hear it many, many times. In uh, Matthew chapter 27, we want to begin reading this morning in verse number 50, 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up the spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those who were with him were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly. And uh, truly, they said, this is the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministered to him, uh, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded that the body be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. You know, the greatest story ever told uh, is uh, compacted very neatly in simply the statement, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. You know, before the resurrection, the cross was known only as an instrument of horrible death, rough wood soaked with human blood. So terrible was the form of execution of the cross that the Roman Empire prohibited the crucifixion of Roman citizens. Crucifixion was only for the worst of slaves and enemies of the empire. But today, because of his resurrection, we wear a replica of the cross as a piece of jewelry, a thing of beauty for all around the world. The cross is seen as a symbol of hope and a reminder of God's love for us. It's amazing how... Jesus changed the definition of the cross. Well, here we begin this morning in verse number 50. And I call this the victory shout. 
Uh, Jesus seems to be relatively strong as he hangs upon the cross. And so much so, as you look down through the seven things that Jesus said upon the cross, it's interesting, take, the, take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Jesus made seven statements from the cross. Several of them, the Bible says, he said with a loud voice. I don't think that was very common for people dying upon a cross, especially after they had been flogged uh, with a whip. They had all sorts of... of things on the end of the whip that just literally took the flesh off of a person. Uh, we believe that the last two statements at least, actually there were three, but at last two, he said with a loud voice. One is one we've been talking about for the last few weeks. It is what? Finished, right? And the next one is, Father, into your hands I dismiss my spirit. Uh, Jesus died differently. You know, I know that people accidentally say that Jesus was a martyr. He wasn't. Uh, he said in John chapter 10, verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life. I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me. Usually a martyr dies when somebody takes their life. Jesus said, listen, no one's taking my life. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again, this commandment I've received from my Father. The other two men dying on either side of Jesus that day on the cross, they, they gave their life unwillingly. But Jesus was different. He gave his life on purpose. Uh, it was his will to die. He willed his spirit to the presence of God. He dismissed his spirit. And when Jesus died and he made that statement, it's finished, uh, there was, of course, a tremendous reaction in heaven, the Father's reaction. The payment was accepted. The Father accepted the payment. Uh, and the payment uh, was the canceling of the debt that justice demand. You know, the Bible says, the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. And so hanging over the human race was this particular, this particular uh, injunction. Somebody has to die. And so when Jesus died, God accepted that potentially, potentially for the sins of the whole world. The human race owed a debt to God, and Jesus paid that debt. The demands of the law were met. And when Jesus speaks, listen to this, uh, he was completely in accord with the Father. When Jesus speaks, the Father speaks. When the Father speaks, Jesus speaks, because they are one in essence. And so when Jesus made that statement, it is finished, uh, the Father concurred well with that statement. And uh, it, you know what that statement means, it's paid in full. And so you and I sit here today as, uh, as recipients of someone who has paid our debt to God the Father. And, uh, and so he accepted the payment. And then he opened the way into God's presence. Look at verse number 51. The veil of the temple was torn in top, from the top to the bottom. Now Je Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said that this veil which uh, behind this veil was the Holy of Holies, uh, was uh, 
60 foot high. That's high. This church is only 45 foot wide. That veil was 60 foot high, and it was four inches thick. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that you could put a horse... Now, how he figured this out, I don't know. But you could put a horse on each end of the veil and drive them in either direction, and it could not tear the veil. It was so strong, so strongly made. But when Jesus died, God the Father tore the veil, not from the bottom up, but from the top down. And, uh, and of course, that had a tremendous meaning. And that meant that everybody now has access to God because, as you know, if you study the Old Testament, there was only one person ever during uh, one day of the year who could go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice uh, for the atonement of the sins of Israel. That was a high priest. And he was the only one that actually had access to the presence of God. And so the Lord says, okay, all that's over. God at a distance is over. Hebrews 10, 19 uh, through 22 says this. Let's see, are you in a re reading spirit this morning? You know, I, I write this stuff down, and I don't usually see it until Di Diane puts it up here. And when I saw this, my heart wilted because it's so long. But let's try it, okay? Let's give it a try, all right? And so, dear brothers and sisters... We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting in him, for our guilty consciences has been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Well, there's a lot in that verse. But it essentially says that we can now enter into the presence of God because of what Jesus said. And this was the, this was the visual picture that God was giving. Come on in. Before it was like, stay out. Only the high priest could go in. Now everybody has access to the presence of God. And so there was also more reaction at the death of Christ in verse number 51. Let's look there. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Now, creation, creation responded, reacted to the death of Christ. If you'll look over to verse number 45 with me, back up there, look at it. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. The sun refused to shine when Jesus was dying on the cross. Just think of it. From noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, there was an eerie darkness that fell over Jerusalem. Merle Unger, the theologian, said this. The father hid his face from the son as he became our sin bearer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. Uh, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it was during that period of darkness when the sun refused to shine 
that this blood-curdling cry with a loud voice came out from the cross, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1. And so all of this is going on right now. Uh, the creation that God made is also in revulsion at what's happening on the cross. So much so that the sun hid its face from what was going on on the cross, maybe so that others looking on may not see the tremendous trauma and torture that Jesus was going through. Then in verse number 51, again, the earthquake. The ground began to move. Roman writers said that the earthquake could be felt in other countries. The earth shook. And then, in addition to that, the Bible says, the rock split. Everybody was in revulsion right here. And whenever I, I read this, I thought of Luke 19.40. It says, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Remember? They were trying to get, uh, they were trying to get Jesus' disciples to tone it down whenever he came through town. And he says, listen, don't try to do that. If my disciples tone it down, the rocks will cry out. And so here they are. They're crying out. They split. You know, if we could attribute emotion to inanimate creation, as Paul did, remember he said creation groans. I think that there are several things going on here with the sun and with the earthquake and with the rocks. They were moved with anger at all that was taking place uh, to the person who created them. And uh, I think at the same time, they were joyful too. To know that the redemption of the creation was closer than it had been before. Well, there, were also, there was also a reaction by the disciples. I find this interesting, that Joseph of Arimathea kind of steps out of the shadows. You know, it's amazing how many secret disciples there are of the Lord, you know that? And then on occasion, they come out of hiding. Well, Joseph and Nicodemus kind of teamed up, and I guess the reason why they were so in hiding is because they had such an important job in Israel. They were part of the Supreme Court. And so uh, at this particular time, they teamed up. And they came out to fetch the body of Jesus, lest his body be thrown in some common burial plot. And of course, the Lord meant it for more than that. He meant it for the fulfillment of Scripture, Isaiah 53, 9. Let's read this. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. And so it's amazing. I have this little, uh, this little article somebody gave me. I think it was Jeff and Arlene Berg. And uh, on the front of the article, it says that on the day of Christ died, there were 27 prophecies fulfilled uh, from the Old Testament. Well, this is one of them right here. The disciples, uh, some of them stepped out and they, they took the body of Jesus and they put it in the, the burial spot of Joseph of Arimathea. But for the most part, the disciples were discouraged. They were afraid. Their hopes were buried. The angels also reacted at the death of Christ. Remember, they are ministering spirits looking on, and uh, they're looking on always for us. Uh, I want you to always look for them, too. Uh, seldom does a day go by that I do not pray that the angels of God protect my family. I pray for my kids by name and by need every day. 
And I asked the Lord to send his angels to them, to guide them, to protect them, to sustain them, to minister to them. They, the Bible says in Hebrews 1.14 that angels are ministering spirits sent forth by God continually to minister for you and me. So it's certainly not wrong for us to pray to the Lord and say to him, Lord, I, I think I need some of your angelic help right now. But the angels were there whenever the, whenever, uh, the women came to the, uh, to the tomb. Look at verse number 2 of chapter 28. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and another earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and it sat on His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. And so the angels were reacting, too, to the death of Christ and the resurrection. They were involved. Uh, what is the blessing, though, of the resurrection? Of course, there's too many things to be mentioned, isn't there? The blessing. February 27, 1991, at the height of Desert Storm, there was a woman named Ruth Dillow. She received a very sad message from the Pentagon. It stated that her son, Clayton Carpenter, private first class, had stepped on a mine in Kuwait and was dead. Ruth Dillow later wrote, I can't begin to describe my grief and shock. It was almost more than I could bear. For three days I wept. I expressed anger and loss. For three days people tried to comfort me to no avail because the loss was so great. But three days after she received that message, the telephone rang, and the voice on the other end said, Mom, it's me. I'm alive. Ruth Dillow said, I couldn't believe it at first, but then I recognized his voice, and he really was alive. The message was all a mistake. She said, I laughed, I cried, I felt like turning cartwheels because my son, whom I thought was dead, was really alive. I'm sure none of you could ever begin to understand how I felt. Maybe the disciples felt a little bit like that when the resurrection took place. They were so completely devastated when Jesus died. You know, the Bible doesn't record that the disciples did any cartwheels, but cartwheels have been around for a long time, haven't they? They really have. And so I guess maybe if we want to throw a little conjecture in here, uh, can't you imagine, especially with the emotion of Peter, uh, how much excitement they were having to hear that Jesus was alive, uh, that this whole death thing was over and Jesus now is living. Well, the interesting thing uh, to me, one of the interesting parts to me is uh, John chapter 20. If you'll turn there, please, with me. John chapter 20. On the day of resurrection, uh, Jesus comes to show himself to his disciples. And in verse number 19, uh, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Uh, I've underlined that in my Bible, and actually in my Bible it's in red letters. It's more than a greeting, shalom. Uh, it's, uh, it's a blessing. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had uh, said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. Uh, one of the great blessings of the resurrection is this. Now we can have peace with God. And, uh, and this is what this entails. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said this. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, gives to you, but let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Peace with God. Colossians 1.21 says that before a person is saved, they are alienated and enemies of the Lord. That's a strange statement. And really what that means is no one can live in the state of neutrality. Jesus said, he who is not with me is what? Against me. And so sometimes people don't want to take a position on Jesus. You know, I think it's okay. I remember one lady told me, I think I'll come to your church because I want to cover all the bases. Well, there is only one base that needs to be covered. But uh, this person wanted to cover all the bases. Before a person is saved, the Bible says that they are enemies to God. And when they accept Jesus, uh, there is a peace treaty going on. And Jesus gives them peace with God through his death on the cross. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21 says this. The wicked are like the troubled sea that cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God to the wicked. People are running crazy today, and you know what they're looking for? Peace. That's what they're looking for. And they're buying this, and they're going there, and they're changing this, and they got all these things going on, and all they want, and they really don't know it, is peace in their heart. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. But there is not only peace, peace with God, there is the peace of God, too, in the Bible. Peace with God, that means everything's right between you and the Lord, and only Jesus can make us right with God. But then there's the peace of God. John 16, 31 says, In the world you shall have tribulation. We have our tribulations, don't we? Can we have an amen early on Easter morning? We have our tribulations. Boy, people are... Tribulated. Is that a word? I like that word. Is that a word, Di? Tribulated. My wife always chews me out because I'm creating new words. She said, that's not a word, but I said, I like it. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Philippians, this is so good right here. Let's read it together. Uh, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication... With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, the first part says, don't worry about anything. That's hard to do, isn't it? How many people have found that's hard to do? <laughs> all of us, right? Don't worry about anything. But instead of worrying, pray about everything. And so, you know what this means? We've got to be praying all the time because there's so much to worry about, right? I remember one lady in the church told me one time, I'm the professional worrier of my family. And she was like proud of it. 
And she, like, she took it all on her. She worried about everybody. Well, that's not a good thing because the word worry means to tear. And it refers to the tearing of our mind. And the Bible says a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. And so whenever we're worrying, our mind is not on what we should be doing. It's divided. It's, it's worrying about something and we're trying to concentrate on something else and we're not very good at concentrating on the other thing. And so we should take all of these burdens and give them to God. And you might say, boy, if I did that, I'd be praying all the time. Well, is there anything wrong with that? The Bible says pray without what? Ceasing. Uh, I mean, we should be preoccupied with Christ at all times. We should be. And so there's this peace of God. Uh, boy, we've seen this in action so many times, haven't we? People have said, we've seen people go through hard times and we've said to them, how can you handle this? So uh, you're so calm. And you know what they say? I don't know. That's the peace of God uh, that passes human understanding. They have more peace about the situation than you do. You know, you're on the outside of their horrific situation and you're all messed up and they're on the inside and they are all calm. And that's the fulfillment of this verse right here. Then he says, I want you to receive the Holy Spirit. There's a new power in the resurrection. Uh, the word that Jesus used in John 14, 16, helper, parakletos, is translated in different ways by different translators. In my New King James Bible, which I'm talking to you from this morning, it's helper. John 14, 16 says, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. The word another in John 14, 16 doesn't mean just an assistant of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. The word another means of the same quality. And so when he promises the Holy Spirit to us, uh, there is no depreciation in person because the Holy Spirit is God too, also. And so he's sending the Holy Spirit to be our helper. And uh, he says, listen, he's going to dwell with you and he's going to be in you. And boy, we ought to be thinking about this all the time. Uh, another way that translators translate that word parakletos is counselor. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit as our counselor. That's a good, that's a good word. Uh, and what does that mean? The, does the Holy Spirit come to us and talk to us and tell us what to do every morning? No. Uh, he counsels us through his word. John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. How does he do that? He does that through the word of God. Whenever we read the, whole, the word of God, he counsels us. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says the people who aren't Christians can't understand these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolishness to them. Uh, because uh, they can only understand these things by the Spirit's means. And then uh, he's our comforter. He is comforter. We go to the cemetery and people once thought that death was the end, but now we know it's the beginning. Isn't that a good thing? Wow, I love that. And so he, uh, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then another last blessing is the new community, and that's the church, a new family. You know, whenever you come to Christ, uh, the Lord wants us all to be in a church, uh, to participate, to gain strength from the church, a new family. 
God's people meeting together, worshiping Him. God's people meeting together for service and for partnership. Colossians 1.24 calls the church the body of Christ. And you've heard me say this before. We are His hands, we are His feet, we are His mouth, we are His eyes, we are His ears. We are the body of Christ on earth. He's the head, we're His body. You know, so many good things have happened in my life in the church. Like that little boy I just told you accepted the Lord, age 11. I was 11 when I accepted the Lord in the church. I walked down the aisle, I kneeled at the old wooden altar in the church, and I uh, accepted Christ as my Savior. Uh, so many good things have happened to me in the church. I gave my life to Christ in the church. I met my wife, Joanne, in the church. I surrendered to be a pastor, a minister in the church. I raised my family in the church. And now I use my gifts along with you to be a part of the ministry of the church. I'll tell you what, I don't think it can get any better than that. I don't think that there is anything better than that. And the thing that I am so thrilled about today is that one day God got a hold of my life when I was, first of all, 11, but it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I realized, hey, I really want to go for this thing. I'm tired of messing around. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to, I'm going to serve God with the rest of my life. And you know, it just, I, I have to confess to you, it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than that. Don't look in the world to find the happiness for your soul. It can only be found in Jesus Christ. Dale Evans one time said this. She said, I spent most of my life searching for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Then finally, I found it at the foot of the cross. Wow. And people are doing that today. They're looking into everything. They're trying to do everything. But I'll tell you, nothing works until you come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, he fills your soul and gives you purpose for living. Because Jesus is alive, and if we have the Holy Spirit, he is alive in us. It just doesn't get any better than that. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, I'd like to ask you to look into your heart. Maybe you're like uh, Dale Evans was one time, searching for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh, I'm here today to remind you that it's found, not there, but at the foot of the cross. Uh, Jesus loved you, he died for you, and he has given you the Holy Spirit if you're saved. And so I want you on this Easter Sunday morning, if you're, if you're wrestling with surrendering to him and giving your life completely to him, I'd like to ask you to do that today. Don't mess around anymore. Don't spend any more of your life looking in the wrong place for happiness and fulfillment. It's all in Jesus. It doesn't get any better than that. And so as we just take one minute right now for reflection and prayer, I want to invite you to just, maybe you need to rededicate your life to the Lord this morning and say, on this Easter, Lord, I'm, I'm going to, my life is changing beginning today. I'm selling out to you. I know, I know what you want me to do, but I've been kind of running from you. I did that when I was 18. 
I was kind of running from God. I, he was in my heart, and I knew it, but I wasn't living exactly the way I should be. And so I said, okay, this is the end of this. I'm going to start following the Lord. Dear Lord, as we come to the end of our service and our invitation time, I pray that you give us freedom this morning. Maybe, maybe on this Easter Sunday morning, some of our people would like to come and pray about their life or, the life, or a friend of theirs that's struggling. I just pray that you give us freedom to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.